Thanks for downloading today's episode. Before the show starts, I wanted to take a moment to ask you to rate and comment on the podcast in iTunes or SoundCloud. The more people who rate us, the bigger we can grow. You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode 60. Disruption and innovation, moving with the times and ensuring our business model is agile and smart. They're words that make most of us feel a little bit uncomfortable. Whether you're a leader in a large organization, run your own business, or anything in between, you get the concepts. Things are changing fast. Technology, the great disruptor of our time, and we're in the midst of a revolution that's more powerful than the great industrial revolutions that change the course of humankind. We are, quite simply, on the cusp of success or failure, relevance or oblivion. So I thought I'd get someone on the show who knows what they're talking about. Paul Broadfoot is an entrepreneurial strategist. He helps organizations navigate the changing tide. He helps them plan to survive and thrive in an ever-changing world. In the conversation you're about to hear, we talk disruption and innovation. We learn how they're different and to whom their need is urgent. We talk business models, identifying your own, how it is today, and what it could become tomorrow. And importantly, Paul gives us some tips on innovation, the things that we in organisations should stop doing, and the things we should start doing in earnest. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Paul Broadfoot. Broadfoot, welcome to the Team Guru podcast. Thanks for having me, David. Paul, I have heard you described as an entrepreneurial strategist. What on earth does that mean? That's not a bad, uh, not a bad name, is it, David? <laughs> yeah. Look, it's combining a couple of things, isn't it? Entrepreneurial ship is all the rage, and everyone's talking startups and disruption and everything else. So I certainly help people with moving with the times and changing changing ahead of those markets that are shifting pretty fast out there. So it is about strategy and it is about being a, a bit bold and a bit new. So Paul, we'll talk in a little while about your thoughts on creating new ideas and, and putting those into practice. But before we get to that, I want to hit something that's really fundamental that I read in your book and I really liked it. It was one of those concepts when I read it, I thought, gee, I've never thought that before, but you made the distinction so nicely. What I'm talking about is the distinction between disruption and innovation. We hear so much about both those things, disruption and innovation. Tell us what they are. How are they different? Yeah, it, it was getting to me a little bit that that I was hearing the, the word and the term disruption just bandied around all the time. And, and it becomes one of those words that becomes a little bit meaningless when everyone's using it and everyone's trying to trying to talk in the management speak of the day. So I, I went back to its 
origin and, and disruption was defined originally as a process by Clay Christensen. And essentially it's about when something changes and a new product enters a market and initially it's inferior. And so it's not a threat to a mainstream product initially. It's it's an inferior product and and it tends to be cheaper and people tend to start using it who aren't already in in that particular market. So over time, it generates some revenue, they improve the product, and then it starts to compete with the mainstream product. So a good example of that in Australia is when Virgin Blue entered the airline market in Australia and initially, you know, baggage allowances and you couldn't change your ticket. And there was all sorts of reasons why it wasn't quite as good a product as, as buying a ticket yeah. on Qantas, yeah. but it was cheaper. And what it did was it added a whole lot of new people to the market. The people who used to drive from Melbourne to Sydney suddenly worked out it was cheaper to fly. And so they started doing it. So one of the characteristics of disruption is it adds new users to a market Mm. and generally the product's inferior in the beginning. So that's disruption. And innovation, on the other hand, is generally a better product being added into the market but not adding in any new users. And a great example of innovation is just the, the razor blade that, you know, we've gone from two razor blades to three to four to five, whatever we're up to now <laughs> with the latest Gillette razor. And yeah. it doesn't, there's still the same faces and armpits being shaved every every day in the world. There's not new users really, except for geographic expansion, but it's, yeah. uh, it's a better product. So people switch to it. All right. I, I really like that. It's worth pondering for a minute. So disruption is a new product that's introduced to a market, but it's usually or often an inferior product. Therefore, it's not a threat to the existing, whoever's sort of owning that market, the existing players, but because it's inferior, it's cheaper, but and it brings new people into the marketplace. As you said, Virgin, when it started in Australia, brought a whole bunch of new people with their cheaper airfares of people who used to drive to holidays now catching planes. That's disruption. Innovation, though, is bringing better products into the market. So they're disrupting the people who used to service that market. But because they're replacing existing products with better ones, they're not really bringing new people into the marketplace. Fantastic. And you gave us an example of those two. I like it. Now, I know because I've read your book, what are some examples that we all know of, of people or organizations that have done both? They've disrupted and innovated. And if you're listening right now, I'm wondering, if is anything jumping to mind? You'll kick yourself when Paul talks you through the answers. Organizations that we've all heard of who have been both disruptors and innovators at the same time. Hit us, Paul. Who are they? Well, there's a couple of ones that I'm sure, as you said, you, your listeners will be kicking themselves if they didn't think about it. So Uber's a good one. A lot of people describe Uber as a disruptor, but I really think they've done both. So as they've entered the marketplace they've been cheaper than taxis. So they're that disruptive product in the beginning. So more people are are taking them. So for example, if I'm running late for work and I normally take the train or the bus to work and it's raining, running late, it's raining, I might just jump in the Uber or the kids who are going out on a Saturday night into the city who would have really caught the train home. Now they can tend to take an Uber. So Uber's been disruptive in that it's added new users into the into the market. Yeah. But many would also say it's innovative because it's a better product. It's easier to see when the ride is going to arrive at your home from their app on the phone. It's convenient. You just got to hit a button. 
So it's cheaper, it's adding people to the market, and a lot of people would say it's better. You're offered a water or something like that yeah. in some of the some of the Ubers. So so that's a good example of uh, of something that does both. Before we move on, I I couldn't agree more. People who listen to this podcast regularly would have heard me talk about Uber a number of times in relation to the the taxi industry, of course, who's one of the great non-innovators of our time. Uber has done exactly what you said. They've disrupted the market by bringing in a cheaper product. And it is cheaper to that point where, as you say, if you're running late for work, in days gone by, I would never have considered catching a taxi. It just wouldn't have popped into my mind unless I was going somewhere that was inaccessible by public transport. But these days, exactly as you said, just the other day, I caught an Uber to work where I'd normally catch the bus just because I could, and it was easy. And I wonder in my mind, is it because it's 15, 20% cheaper than a taxi, or is it because it's better service, or is it a combination of the two? I really don't know. I'm sure the studies would tell you. What is the answer there, Paul? Why do I find it more likely to use an Uber? I think it's, you know, two things we love when we're consumers in general is cheaper and faster. You yeah. know, it's better, cheaper and faster. Yeah. We could argue Uber's all three. Mm. When I used to live in Singapore, I was a bit amazed when I first went there. It was so easy getting out of the airport because all the all the taxis would would park in a in a diagonal line. Any one of them could take off at any given time. And it was cheap. We didn't even think about driving when we lived in Singapore because it was $10 anywhere. Yeah, and Singapore's not a, that. not a great big place either, yeah. but it was $10 and we just jumped in. That was it. Yeah. So does that mean some, something like Uber might not have got a, a stronger foothold in Singapore because the market wasn't agitated with the old service? I can imagine that and I can, because it was almost like you walk out your front door, stick your hand in the air and there'd be a taxi coming past in in three nanoseconds in yeah. most places. So, yeah, I, I imagine it might not get as fast a foothold there. I love to bash the taxi industry here on this podcast, and they really lay a fertile ground, didn't they, for Uber to come along and disrupt them? They did, and that's that's really, I guess, what I'm always trying to do, David. I'm shouting from the rooftops about the skies falling to all the incumbents in industries and markets out there, especially in corporate Australia, just, hey, we've got to start disrupting now, don't wait for it to happen to you. Go out and make it happen. So when you talk about disruption and innovation in the workplace uh, to people who are leaders in large organizations or people who run their own organization, what are they getting wrong? When they're thinking innovation and disruption, what aren't they doing right? Or is the question really, geez, it's hard to come up with an Uber and an Airbnb? Because in hindsight, they seem like such wonderfully obvious ideas, but you know we didn't come up with them. Someone else did. So what's going on in organizations that are struggling to innovate? Is it because it's just really hard to do or are they falling flat because they're not going about it the right way? Oh, there's definitely a couple of things in there. There's an issue around when we do look at, say, Uber and Airbnb, two good examples, there's probably actually a whole long list of, of reasons that we need to think about to change those. So Uber and Airbnb are examples of companies that didn't invent a new product. Mm, yep. They didn't come up with the technology that's used. So take Airbnb, booking rooms over the internet is nothing new. Yeah. And yet they completely changed and flipped the prevailing norm in that accommodation market about how things were, how things operated. And basically that was a business model innovation. And so one of the things around disruption is it's generally a business model that is disrupted. It's often not 
a brand new widget that's invented. So I try and use the analogy about it's not about inventing the next gun on the bow, that beats the bow and arrow. It's more about a superior strategy and a change of business model. And as you said, it was there for anyone to invent, wasn't mm. it, Airbnb? It was, yeah. it was just changing that the way they did that. And, and Uber as well, they didn't invent the location-based services or the, or the passengers or the A to B car. They just changed where the car capacity came from and flipped the, the model in the industry. So that's one thing. People are focused on product innovation instead of business model innovation and instead of flipping the way the market operates. That's right, a, yeah. a perspective that can be different. Yeah. The second thing is, yes, change is hard. The bigger you get, the harder it is to change. And so I think companies are focusing a lot of their innovation efforts on idea generation, you know, the hackathons and yeah. the, and those events, those events where they're pitching or they, they've got panels going on. And that's not going to cut it because we're not short of ideas. We're actually short of the traction of getting them into into practice and into operation. And that's the trick. Right. That's fantastic. You're so right. When we think innovation, we think we've all got to get in a brainstorming session and throw ideas around. But as you say, ideas aren't the problem. It's getting traction, having someone invest, having someone move with the times and put some weight behind it. Yeah. And and one of the things I... I tried to do for people, David, is that is a very legitimate form of innovation is you've got four types of innovation. You've got company innovation, which looks like improving processes and getting better and optimization and efficiency. So that's company innovation or process innovation, sometimes called. Then you've got product innovation, you know, invent the next best mousetrap and you're you're on a winner there, the next Apple iPhone, (laughs) iPod. And you've also got customer innovation that's getting a lot of traction now around observing customers, surveying customers, finding out how customers use products and then trying to innovate around what would make their life easier. So that's Mm. customer-centric or often called user design or user-centric design, Mm -hmm. UX, and that's quite popular now. And startups are very nimble and they're very good at that. But where I was coming from is what Uber and Airbnb and Netflix and people like that have done is they flip markets and the way they operated. So I came up with a a table, if you like, or a definition around a business model so that people had a finite set of choices. They had 24 business models, plug in where you think you are now and then have a look at the other 23. And then it might not be so accidental to find an Airbnb. So instead of brainstorming and expanding all the options available for innovation in a a one-day innovation fest, I'm saying, let's just start with a finite set of choices. Here's 24 business models where's your current one, where's the market, and let's try a few different ones. And that's very quick. When people talk about, and I've, I've read you talk about, you know, finding your, your business model in, in under three minutes, when people go through that process, what surprises them most about what their true business model is? What, what are people fooling themselves about? Yeah, I think it's business models are a lot like disruption. You know, it's one of those terms that's used so much, it's really hard mm. to define, but mm. I went about doing that and essentially the definition of a business model according to to what I think is easy for people to get is you have an asset and you have an activity. So your asset that you sell, your income generating asset, that can be a physical product or it can be a digital product or it can be your own knowledge or it can be a marketplace. So there's there's six different types of assets and you pick which one you, you currently have. So mm-hmm. you take a Coles. Their asset is a physical product. They're selling a physical product. Yeah. 
And then you ask yourself, what's the income generating activity that goes with that asset? And so you've got distribution and creation and contacting and connection. So if you take Coles again, their activity is distribution. So they have physical product distribution is their business model. The people who make the products, the food products that go to Coles, again, have a physical product as an asset, but their activity is actually creation. They've created the product. Mm. They're not distributing it. So that's an example of if we took those two and we're a manufacturer and we, we said, okay, well, we've got a instead of physical product creation, why don't we try physical product distribution? Then all of a sudden they're looking overseas for great suppliers, potentially importing, developing a wholesaling business. And bang, they've got a they've got a new business model that they can look for new growth in. That's fantastic. That gives such a nice structured way to re-examine your business and and have a look at some of the options. Yeah, and tell, that's what I'm trying to do is help people with that that change. Tell me about some of the success stories you've had where just talking people through their business model and what it really is made up of. Just the way that you did there with distribution, creating, contracting, and connection. Is that correct? Yes. Yep. Then, yeah, so I had a I had a client that was in the the mining industry, and as we all know, mining went through quite a deep downturn mm. over the past few years. And so they're looking; they're a manufacturer, one of the last manufacturers of their type in Australia. And so they were faced; they knew the downturn would be at least a couple of years, and so they were faced with losing, you know, very high double digit percentage of their sales revenue unless they did something. So when I sat with them and we we looked at what they could possibly do, so their business model was physical product creation. Yeah. And so we got to another couple of options for them. They knew the customers really well and they knew how their products were used. And so they had this whole application knowledge base that they were delivering value in. So they had another option of knowledge as the asset and contracting as a service. Mm. So that was a completely new business model. So getting paid for service, turning a physical product business into a service business. Mm. So that was along the lines of a consulting model. So that was one option available to them. Another option available to them was the example I just gave around distribution. So instead of manufacturing the product locally, they could source for alternate products, not the exact same type of product that they had today, but allied products that they could put into a portfolio of products that went to the, the client. And so that automatically expands their revenue, of course, if they're not just, you know, the one thing they were selling, big downturn, but if they can add product A, product B, product C in there through high quality players overseas and get some sort of exclusive distribution arrangement with them, then they're in business. So those were two powerful new revenue streams for that business that was otherwise just going to have to wait it out. That's incredible. I really like that. I'm just going to dwell on that for a minute. So you talk about there being an asset and an activity. That's the at the core of our business model. And within the asset, it could be product that you're, you know, it could be a product, could be knowledge, could be a service. And then that, so that's the asset. And then in the activity, it could either be creating it, distributing it, contracting it, or connecting it. And you play around with different combinations of those things. So if you're in an industry, say you're doing something within the mining industry and you used to make a product and you used to sell it, you used to distribute it and you were going gangbusters, but the rest of the industry has slowed down. So therefore your business has slowed down. You have a look at the combination of your asset and your activity and there 
within that and the skills and the knowledge that you've picked up along the way within the industry, within that combination of asset and activity, often lies the opportunity for innovation. Yeah, absolutely. And it's deceptively simple, deceptively quick. In fact, I say you can identify your business model in under three minutes and you can come up with a a completely different idea in the same amount of time. And it almost seems like it's too quick and easy, Mm. but those are the ideas that are market innovation, the ideas that are going to flip the way the prevailing industry works as opposed to inventing a new product, which is very powerful if you can do it, but not everyone can do it all the time. If you want to inject some energy and leadership expertise into your next event, why not invite David to speak? He'll get things moving. You know, there's a tone in your book that sort of suggests if you're not changing, if you're not innovating, if you're not thinking right now, you are going to die. And that makes me really nervous. <laughs> I was reading that thinking, oh my goodness, am I just being too comfortable? Do we really all need to be thinking like that? Are we really all under an existential threat in the near future? Yeah, look, I, I'm, that's very much thank you for picking that tone out. That's definitely my tone. I <laughs> yeah. really am trying to grab business by the scruff of the neck and yeah. say, the change is exponential. You mm. know, the, the thing about exponential change is it starts small and if yep. it doubles and doubles and doubles and doubles until the point where it's so fast that it just swamps us. And you can see that now. 12 months ago, I was talking about autonomous vehicles and driverless cars. Yeah. And audiences would look at me and, and think, yeah, well, that's that's really super cool. Sounds cool, but it's not going to affect me. And you pick up the Royal Auto Magazine or the Herald Sun or anything, you read an article on any of the web at the moment and you will see it everywhere and it's just about to enter our daily lives. So that's one thing. Change is coming on fast and I really think it's not that it's going to be bad for everyone, David, at all because obviously some people are going to do very, very well out of the changing technology and the changing consumer behaviour. But what I think is going to happen is the middle is going to get squeezed. So you're going to see some big losers and you're going to see some big winners. But I think the middle bit, when everything gets cheaper and more competitive and more players into the market and change is more rapid, it's going to be hard to be that beige vanilla middle. What's going to happen to people, Paul, when we move into the the next phase? As you, you talk about, we're in a new revolution, a new industrial revolution. Change is happening quickly. Even those of us who think we're aware of what's going on can probably not really guess the extent to which change is happening. And then there are others who are completely not switched into it. They go to work, they get their bus, they come home at five o'clock and they turn on the TV and forget about work until the next day. They're not in tune. They're not thinkers about their career or their business. What's going to happen to all of us? I'm starting to get a bit concerned about this. There is no job that exists today that could possibly not be taken over by machines within the next decade. Yeah, there's, there, I guess there's good news and bad news and all that. The consumer is going to be an amazing winner out of this mm. in that their lifestyle is going to improve, things are going to be cheaper, everything's going to be delivered to them exactly as they want it, yeah. very, very fast. So in general, on average, the consumer is going to benefit big time. But if they're working for a company that's disrupted – and they lose their job, that's going to be really tough. Mm. And there's going to be parts of the marketplace when Amazon enters early next year that 
are going to be helped. So small businesses that sell through there through them may do very well, but large retailers are going to be really heavily hit. So it is going to be it is going to depend where we are and what affects us. And we're not going to be able to see all change coming. What I'm advocating for people though is that they just keep mobile and they keep moving. Mm. So it's a lot easier to adjust course when you're already motoring along as opposed to if you're sitting still and you're oblivious and you're not trying to keep up with change, then it's a lot easier to get hit from the side. So what that means for someone is stay on top of the trends, have a look at how your company's doing, read a lot, try and stay up to date on everything that's shifting because you'll it might not prevent you being impacted, but it might help you deal with that impact when it hits. I like that advice. That's very sage advice. We can't see all of the changes that are going to happen. Sure, get that. But what you can do is ensure that you're moving. Ensure that you're someone that can move around in your career. You're not just stuck, you know, motionless in the same position, learning nothing, going nowhere. Because if you do get hit with change and you're already in motion, you're already agile, used to moving around, being flexible with the way that you work, then you're going to adjust to the new change. And as you say, there's going to be winners and losers. The middle is going to get squeezed out. There's going to be a lot of people who are doing okay and a lot of people who just are not doing okay. So we all know which end we want to be in. And the whole the whole middle class losing out is a whole political discussion that is probably not right for now. But it is, pro- it is a sad reality that that looks as though that's where we're headed. Hey, I love this concept of the consumer winning. I'm a terrible consumer. I love stuff. I love stuff that makes my life more enjoyable. I'm not a I'm not a great buyer. I don't just go around spending money willy-nilly, but I do buy things that I think will make my life more enjoyable or easier or more convenient. And I love the idea that in the future, things will only get better for the consumer. And that is obviously a no-brainer. What's happened to us as consumers in the last 10, 15 years is mind-blowing. And as you say, this growth just continues to speed up. It does. And, and, you know, I think I'm not sure if you're a, a gadget man, David, but I think the birthday present of the year next year is probably likely to be Amazon's little artificially intelligent Alexa cylinder that sits on your kitchen bench that you can ask about the weather and order groceries and, and do all sorts of fun things with. Wow. And I guess that's going to be a sign of the times when and those things start popping up on people's benches. And, and what's the and idea what behind it? What's it going to do? So... They're already in the US now. It's a little cylinder, sits on your bench top, and it's powered by Amazon's artificially intelligent Alexa is the name. Right. And so you can just say, hey, Alexa, just like you can say, hey, Siri, can you tell me what the weather's going to be like tomorrow? Can you add choc chips to my shopping list? Wow. Can you tell me how many teaspoons in a tablespoon? You know, there's that Elvis song that goes (laughs) like this. Here's some lyrics. I can't remember the I can't remember the name of the song. Can you play yeah. that for me? Wow. I'll find the song and play it for you. Can you turn the lights down? You know, we're not far away from this at all. 12 months, I reckon. That's cool. I love that kind of stuff. But it makes me sad at the same time. We talk about being, a, you know, in living in this consumer world where there's all these cool gadgets that make our life awesome, but there's going to be a huge percentage of the population that can't afford to buy anything. Well, there's, I've got a story there for you, David. I My daughter went over... Last year with school, she went over to, lucky enough to go over to San Francisco, saved up her, her bickies and mm. she went over there for a couple of weeks and stayed with a host family. And, and Christmas last year, the, the host family decided to send her over by herself 
the young girl that, that my daughter stayed with. Right. And so she came over at Christmas time and as Christmas was approaching, I was kept asking what date is she coming? What's the flight number? And it soon turned out that the flight hadn't been booked till the very last minute. And, yeah. and that was to save some money and to try to get a special deal. And it turns out that young Hannah's family wasn't that well off. And yeah. so two things amazed me. One was once she got out here, the return flight changed again. But the story behind that was that her mum had planned on affording to get her back via whatever means, but she didn't have the money basically. Right. So wow. she put up a story on GoFundMe to raise the money to get Hannah back home. Wow. So quite a heartfelt story about trying to be a good mum all her life and, and different things there. But the end result was, I guess, family, friends and complete strangers saved up the 800 US dollars to get Hannah back. Mm. But the interesting story about that is when I said to Hannah, what did you get for Christmas? She said, I got Alexa. Wow, so, right, yeah. Because they're 99 bucks. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, it's interesting that that was in the mix of someone who couldn't quite afford to get her daughter home, but there was a, an artificial intelligent gadget for Christmas. So yeah. I wonder. Wow. I don't know what to make of that story. I mean, it was nice that people stumped up and got her home, but mum essentially sent her away without the, <laughs> the means to get her back. I don't know. I don't know whether there's a, lot a of great questions, story or not. A lot of questions to be asked. <laughs> and then she gets I heard about selling a car. I heard she was she was willing to sell her car should it be mm. necessary. Okay. But then as you say, then she gets the the latest fancy newfangled technology for the for Christmas. Incredible. All right, Paul. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment, neither of us are this, but let's say we're a leader in a large large organization and we can feel these changes coming. We know that we're at risk of doing nothing and being one of the big organizations gobbled up by innovators and disruptors. But our organization is slow moving. Our organization thinks ideas are amazing, but no one can get any traction. No one can get the investment required to give ideas a go. What do I do? Okay. Well, there's two things. One thing we stop doing and one thing we start doing. The thing we stop doing as a CEO of this, this uh, large organization is getting up in front of everyone and saying, hey, guys, I really want you to change more. I want you to innovate more and I want you all to take more risk. Yep. Because most people in that organization are going to be busy doing their day-to-day stuff and they come into work and they're going to do a great job at their job and then they're going to go home. But there's a very small subset of people within that organization who would change anything if they possibly could. And they'd change it all the time and they'd change it even if it's not broken. And they're called the entrepreneurs. So those people with an entrepreneurial tendency, so in a big company, we'll call them entrepreneurs. So there's there's a percentage, a small percentage of people in that big company that just want to change stuff. They don't have to be convinced. The CEO doesn't have to tell them to be more innovative. They come in and do it at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So what we need to do is get those entrepreneurs. We need to find them. We need to give them a few skills. and We need to put them in a little speedboat and get them off the side of the mothership, and we need them to go hard after new business models, flipping markets, and creating new growth. So it's not about the whole organization moving and trying to do that stuff it's kind of ridiculous when you think about it right because the core business still needs to keep going it's where where the money's coming from today all that needs to keep happening let's get a few of these other ones off 
off the mothership and have them charting new territories for us and let's give them a different set of rules. That's very sensibly laid out. Paul, what sort of organisations are you aware of and or have you worked with or read about who do that well and have had these little teams of entrepreneurs, the small percentage people who just want to change things and have been smart enough to detach them from the mothership? There was a good example actually it came out of Britain in May. So Barclays Bank, the second biggest bank in Britain, uh, have an accelerator. So they fund startups to come into this accelerator. They run them through a 13 week program, you know, with an external consultancy and they're helping them out. They get mentored and then they they have some sort of event at the end of that and and they agree to fund the best of them. So they funded eight fintech financial technology startups in May. Mm-hmm. And one of them was an entrepreneur team. So they got a team out of the bank, they put them in the accelerator and then they funded them into a new business. And so there's a that's an example of of something happening out of Europe. And I've actually interviewed innovation centers in Europe before that have been doing this sort of thing for 10 years. And what they do is they bring together startups, they bring together corporates, and then they bring together investors. The investors fund the technology and the startup stuff. The corporates get to choose whether they invest in it, whether they buy it and keep it, whether they sell it. So there's all sorts of different financial models behind all of this, but it all starts with somewhere that, that people can go that are outside of the, the mothership where they can innovate. And what about organizations that aren't doing this? I'm imagining that the examples across the globe are many of large organizations who think they can just keep plodding along doing the same thing that's made them big and healthy for the last 50 years. Well, look at some of our biggest ones, David. It's time to get controversial, I think. Mm, please. You look at our, our big four banks, mm. and I keep asking people, all right, which is the best? Yeah. Which is the cheapest? Which is the best service? And inevitably what we come back with is certain people have certain views, I'm sure. But we've had these big organizations in Australia for ages focused a lot on company innovation, which is optimization, efficiency, you know, linear, straight line kind of stuff. And now they're faced with the need to innovate and, and they're probably as aware as anyone, the big banks, mm. of having to do things differently. And I think they're all doing good stuff now. But to the consumer out there looking at them now, it's really hard to pick them apart. They of all course. seem the same. Yes. And you could do the same thing for the supermarkets who are all trying to be the lowest price. Mm-hmm. It's uh, And the petrol companies, you know, they're all the same. Who's got the best petrol, cheapest petrol, best service? It's all getting very, very, you know, in my favourite words, beige and vanilla, and it's time to shake things up and be different. But with with something like the fuel stations, petrol stations, what can you do differently? I mean, you can put milk and bread, and some even have basically a small convenience store there, but people are essentially looking for the lowest price fuel, right? Well, when I go to my local cafe and, and they remember my – Mm, my particular coffee yeah. and they give me a smile and we have a bit of a chat yep and it's not a it's not an extended it's an extended interaction is it it's just like walking get a take away cup of coffee and, and off I go I'm not sure why individual service station outlets can't why can't they do that introduce that type of service yeah yeah you're it wouldn't right. take a lot and you know I'm I've been convinced so many times there's no such thing as a commodity or no such thing as a 
a plain way to do business. You see so many things every day where people are innovative and, and change how, how they're perceived. Yeah, you're right. It's just little things like that, like going to the service station, buying your fuel, and the guy saying, nice to see you again, David. How's your car going? You know, And he names your car because he knows what type of car you drive. That would be the equivalent to the, the someone at the coffee shop remembering my order and remembering my name. You're right. It does feel great when you go to the coffee shop and they know who you are, and there is something that gets you going back in that circumstance. It is, it is. And it's it's always the little mm, things and it's it always is. the things that aren't scripts or there aren't practice processes. Yep. So the upsell that we're all asked to do as we exit the, the fuel shop is not the right way to go. Yeah, that's right. They're just trying to squeeze one last 10 cent piece out of you. So the banks are an interesting example. Actually, I had a guy called Anders Sorman Nielsen on the podcast way back. He's a futurist back in the mid-40s episodes. So he was fantastic. And he was telling me that any industry where there is friction between the service provider and the customer is right for the picking in terms of disruption and innovation. And we talked about banks being ripe for the picking. They are so old-fashioned. There is so much friction between the customer and the bank. They're just setting themselves up for innovation. And I'm sure they're all doing little things, little pockets of innovation, but none of the big four, as you say, have stepped out of that little circle and differentiated themselves so that we all look at them and go, oh yeah, the big three banks are terrible, but at least X, you know, such and such has changed its ways. None of them are doing that. And when one of them can step up and do that, or a new player comes on the scene and is able to do that, then I think they'll do pretty well. Yeah, absolutely. The minute I don't have to get on a, a call and wait for half an hour with some sort of terrible music to be listened to and not know if I'm going to be answered in in 20 minutes or, or 60 minutes, the minute, the second everyone has an option on that, they will run. Yeah, or not have to make those calls at all. All right, now before we finish up, Paul, I want to know about you, mate. Are you a plumber with a leaky tap or is your own business model agile and always moving and always thinking? I always love plumbers as clients because they keep it real, actually. I know that's not the question, but but they're – and they do. They do have leaky taps. So, yeah, business models. I, I guess I put my money where my mouth is in many ways with a couple of startups that I work with. So that's how I get my business model in gear. So when you're a startup, you get to choose your business model from scratch mm. and you often get to trial and experiment a little bit. So – I'm an angel investor in in one startup and an advisor to another. And yeah, so that's how I leverage business model. Other than that, I'm a, um, I'm a consultant. So I, I guess there's not too many business models that that can look like. No, you just sell your time. Yep. <laughs> All right, Paul, I have four quick questions before we finish up tonight. Mate, number one, are you ready to go? Yes. All right. Now tell me about the Saturday night you most look forward to. Is it a big party with lots of people you know or an intimate dinner with your closest friends? It's definitely an intimate dinner with my closest friends. I love deep conversations. Do you? Not the big party guy? Oh, no. I'd probably go out to party rather than have that at my own house probably. (laughs) All right. Now, are you more likely to get bogged down in detail or caught daydreaming? Oh, daydreaming, yeah, definitely always thinking, yeah. All right. What about this one, making decisions? Are you a slave to rational thought or do you make decisions based on emotion? Yeah, I'm I'm the ultimate rebel, David. I will 
go the different way just to go the different way. <laughs> really? So based on emotion? Yep. Yep. Good. Like it. Very last question, Paul. You're going on a road trip. Do you like to book the hotels, know exactly where you're going, or do you just get in the car and drive? Yeah, I reckon you could guess this one, get in the car and drive. Yeah, nice one. Paul Broadfoot, it's been an absolute pleasure. David, thanks for that. And that was Paul Broadfoot. I loved learning, finally, the difference between innovation and disruption. And I loved the simplicity of understanding our business model and our options for the future. Those two key elements, assets and activity. Asset is either a product, some knowledge or a service. And our activity is one of these four, distribution, creating, contracting or connecting. Understanding our business model through these terms and thinking about our options for the future is so remarkably simple, but it gets you thinking, doesn't it? As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Paul on the Lessons Learned page from this podcast. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teams with an S dot guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, or LinkedIn, and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the principles and theory of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.